Hey, it's Dr. Sarah and Alicia here, and you are listening to the Pregnancy for Professionals podcast. Our goal is to bring forward evidence-based information from all disciplines, supporting pregnant people through their journey to becoming new parents. From physicians to midwives, nurses to physiotherapists, and everyone in between. Make sure to fill out the quick survey in the show notes to let us know which topics you are interested in learning about and to make sure we are serving you, our maternity care provider community, well. Don't forget, the information on this podcast is for educational purposes only. Please consult with your team and your community for individual medical decisions that need to be made. Check us out on Instagram at pregnancy for professionals to find informative and educational posts for both you and that you can use for your patients. I'm really excited today. Today we are chatting with Dr. Anjali Maholtra, who is a family physician in Kelowna, and she's going to be talking to us around kind of a coercion and consent in the First Nations perinatal journey. And Dr. Maholtra, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and what's brought you to the point in your career that you are doing all of this work? Thank you. So I started way back. I always focus all of my work on people's journeys. And so I like to share mine as well. So I'm a child of immigrants, but my parents' story started during the partition of India. And um, they were essentially made refugees at that time where they walked the partition line. They subsequently became educated. And particularly my mother's family of three daughters all became educated which was really something very special at that time in India in the 30s. My mom and dad met and immigrated to England and then eventually landed in northern Saskatchewan. On their journey, they faced abject racism. They had a lot of issues surrounding both of them being employed, particularly my mother. My mother was the first female independent practitioner in northern Saskatchewan in our hometown and started her own obstetrical practice. And that's the practice we were born into and surrounded by this incredible love and acceptance for our own Indigenous community of Northern Saskatchewan. So we were away from our own Indigenous home. However, we are embraced and made a part of another family and community. And so in which I was raised and it's been a pretty amazing journey since. Work-wise, um, you know, I became a physician and definitely to serve a similar or same community as home. And uh, I've always had my mom and my ancestors guiding me through this work, particularly the hard work that we're doing right now and consenting. But I'm currently working and have been for the last five years at the First Nations Health Authority. And it is a real honor, a real privilege, and I am incredibly grateful to be doing the work that I'm doing. Currently, one of the main pieces of work that I'm doing is regarding people's rights, particularly surrounding maternal child health. And how does our system transform to ensure that these rights are met? So one large piece of work surrounds consent. Now, when we consider what consent is, this agreement between patient and provider. But because of the fiduciary responsibility between patient and provider and the power imbalance, we as providers have a great responsibility when it comes to what that relationship looks like. And although our system hasn't always supported what that should look like, 
now as we enter our cultural humility journeys and try to reach a system that's culturally safe, which means one free of discrimination, bias, and racism, we need to look very hard at ourselves in the system that we look at for all provision of care. And I'm not talking to just physicians. I'm talking to social workers, nursing, medicine, everyone who's within the hospital. Because when I talk about consent and rights, every point of contact that the patient makes within the healthcare system is one that's going to influence how they walk out of the system. So the person that's helping maintain clean rooms, the person that's booking appointments, the person that does surgery, all important, equally important to ensure that this person's wellness journey is respected and that when they leave care, they not only know what they are leaving as with having changed, but they know that they felt safe. And those are important pieces. And one specific point that I'm hoping to talk about today is about coercion when it comes to uh, contraception and sterilization. So when we think of that agreement between patient and provider, it's of the utmost importance when we're talking about anyone who has been discriminated against in the past. So our BIPOC populations, our Indigenous families, our Métis, First Nations, and uh, Inuit families. We need to ensure that we have a heightened state of responsibility as providers to ensure, again, as an entire circle of care, that people have cultural safety within the care that they are being provided. Traditionally, our system has been that we as providers are taught to consent people at certain periods of time. And a great example is postpartum to talk about contraception at that time. Say you're done having your baby this time, let's have that conversation right now. However, story after story has come forward saying that is not the time that it is most appropriate to have that conversation. I'm underdressed, I've just had a baby, I'm exhausted and potentially even, unfortunately, sedated or being threatened at a time when someone's very vulnerable. And so when I talk about how we need to change the system, we need to pass on to our learners and our teams and ourselves to ensure that these conversations are happening well in advance of that time period. And this is an easy tangential example, because when you see a pregnant lady, you're going to see her for her entire pregnancy or if you have someone who's going to receive her as being someone expatriated from her clinic or from her home, you get to outreach because you know which communities are coming to you and have the conversation well in advance. And these conversations can happen over time then. They can be things that people have time to go home and think about what they'd like to do, potentially change their mind, potentially have other people involved in the conversation. Cocums, aunties, uncles, children, whoever they feel is important, or maybe just themselves, but they're given the opportunity to have those conversations outside of the strain of the hospital confines and outside of that strain of duress, stress, fatigue. It's so true. We started doing a lot of this work in our clinic and our community and starting to have these conversations in that like late second, early third trimester when people are starting to think about birth and what's going to happen afterwards, because you're 100% right, having it when they're sleep deprived at two weeks postpartum and not even thinking about being ready to have sex again. It just, it doesn't provide that useful ability for people to have those conversations and really make the right decision for them. And so having, starting those conversations early 
and involving all of the people that need to be involved is challenging in our system, unfortunately, but it is such an important thing so people can really make those decisions. Because some of the things that we can support people with, we can do immediately after delivery right now. And we know that, and some people want that. But if you haven't had those conversations, you can't give them that option anymore. Absolutely. And I think when we look at consent as a whole, it's important to know that it's not just reproductive health that these principles apply to. When we think of how consent can be coercive, it can be absolute duress, someone's sedated, someone's fatigued, but also it can be the language in which we use is something that is not understood by the person receiving it. And our system is built to protect the giver of the information, not the receiver of the information. And so it's important for us to remember that can be a big part of it. The forms in which we give, and I consider forms a living part of care. They are part of that care circle. If someone can't understand the forms, that is not consent. If it's written in medical lingo, it's explained in medical lingo or being translated potentially in a way that's still complex. We have to remember as providers, we speak a different language and we have to remember that not everyone speaks our language. And so we need to know that we need to effectively change the way in which we are looking at that consent. But also if we don't give people that time, that could be coercive, that people don't have that separation of decision-making because that power of balance needs to be broken and challenged within our system. So absolutely, we're the harbors of information, but we are not the ones who should be making the decision for someone else. And then a big piece that comes into play is surrounding bias. So cultural humility is us reflecting upon our own personal biases and the biases within our system. Now, when that comes to consent, we can sway consent with our own biases. We can change how we talk about risk and how we talk about benefit. That can happen. And that's the way our system was built, that we can sway the conversation in a direction we feel that it should go in, which is completely inappropriate and not consent. So we have to check our biases when we're consenting someone to how we are speaking to our patient and what that looks like, because it can't sway their decision-making, because that's a big part of how consent can become coercive. So there's ways that we can change things. Another one would in fact be that space. So like I consider forms a living part of care, the spaces as well. If someone walks into our space and they don't feel safe in the space because nothing there represents them, there's no land acknowledgement. There is no art that they recognize. There's no safety net of any kind. They're being asked to change too soon before meeting someone. Anything along that line creates this unsafe environment. And that's, again, the responsibility of the entire care team to try to work and facilitate to make people feel calm so that they can actually hear and receive the information. And then it's our responsibility to have to give the information. So we look at ways now within the system, how do we change that? What does that look like? One, forms should be in plain English. They should be translated. If any provider of any type of care has forms that are in medical language, you need another copy of them that represent the same things in a form that's easy to read. An example would be the postpartum contraception informed consent we have on the FNHA website that is in plain language. Absolutely, it's not going to give you the in-depth details of the surgical consent form. It needs to be done alongside that and that needs to be translated. But for those conversations going into decision-making about what type and how you want to receive contraception care, we have a good example of that that you can access on our site that's public-facing. 
We need to ensure rooms have land acknowledgement. We need to ensure that they're safe spaces. When someone walks in, they feel that they have time to sit and get to know someone. And we often think, well, wow, Mexico is so busy and we just don't have that kind of time. I understand that. But there's always time to say, where did you come in from today? Where are you heading to after you leave here? Because I'll tell you, our history taking is incomplete without knowing information like this. What's at home? What's supporting someone? What's happening at home? Because how can we offer any type of care other than emergent care without knowing those pieces of information? So that's like an embed within our history taking. And what's amazing about it is you'll probably get everything you need anyway from a lot of these questions. You'll probably know a lot more about your patient than you thought you would by not asking, by answering these questions. So getting someone's information in place. Another piece that you can do is, of course, ensure that relationship is established before. So one thing that I encourage providers to do, particularly if they're receiving patients from out of their own home community, get to know the community. Start asking some questions about it on your own. Explore where are people coming in from to receive my care and what does their community look like? Because I think the key point within all of this is that when someone leaves our care, they should know exactly what their life is going to be like when they leave the care. And a good example of that would be if we're consenting someone for sterilization, they should know they can no longer have children. It should be open, it should be outward, and it should be in plain language. If we're giving someone an IUD, they should know exactly how to have it removed if they so wish. They should know who would do that, who do they call, which is that look like. If they're getting an implant, same thing. So these are life-altering pieces of someone's care that our traditional system hasn't supported. And I totally understand the pressure of time as a clinician for 15 years. However, I will say these are the most important questions when someone walks in. They are vital pieces to ask anyone. I think also I was reading through, you guys have some amazing documents on the FNHA website, and I was reading through one today, a couple this morning, actually. And this is one of the, I'll just read a quote from it. So prenatal delivery and postnatal care are among the most frequently cited locations of anti-Indigenous racist racism or discrimination experienced within the BC healthcare system, which, which on one hand blows my mind, but on the other hand... I can 100% see that, both from a historical concept, but even the way that we're continuing to work now, um, especially over COVID. We're looking at these very restrictive visitor policies when birth is such a celebration in so many of our, so many of our cultures, but specifically First Nations. And I'm going to tell a story that makes me look horrible, but it's a wonderful learning. Like I used to go into deliveries and there would be so many people. In these tiny rooms, so many people celebrating this birthing person. Like now looking back, incredible. And I would be like, why is every, why are there so many people in here? There's not enough space. I need like, how am I supposed to do this? And everybody was respectful. They were not in the way. They were just there to celebrate. And this, and looking back now, I can't believe that I ever had that thought. What a wonderful gift to surround yourself with the people who are the most important and who will help support you in your journey if that's what you want to do. And through COVID. Yeah. COVID robbed people from that experience, everybody, but mm-hmm. especially those cultures that had this, this really celebratory community-based birthing tradition, right? 
And so I think another thing that we need to make sure that we ask is when we're going into the room meeting somebody in labor, we've never met them before. This is a very vulnerable time. Is there any traditions or beliefs that you want to incorporate into this? And that's one of the one of the questions that I took away from that reading this morning that I'm going to start incorporating for everybody, really. I ask that, but not in a very outright way. And so I think I think that's Absolutely. hopefully a way that we can also understand each other a little bit better too. Absolutely. Ceremony and culture are so important to so many people. And it's really important. Perinatal Services BC has also done a great deal of work on with Lucy Barney on bringing ceremony back to traditional pieces like birthing and also loss of pregnancy. There's certain things that need to happen in certain cultures. And we have never had a system that has opened a space that says, what can we do? Let's create a ceremony space. Let's ensure that's occurring. And that's that important part of your care that we will respect. And that's vital because that's where our biases have to be challenged too. Birthing becomes one of the highest rates of racism and discrimination. There are a lot of reasons. And one is a lack of understanding of ceremony tradition. And one is a lack of understanding of how culture deems birth and what that looks like. Also on a personal level of, it's not a provider's right to make a decision about someone's birthing choice in the sense to say, I don't think that you should have more kids and it's not a medically induced decision. When it becomes a social context, that's where we run into coercion and particularly course sterilization. But it's also how, when we take a step back, we're talking to patients. What kind of words and language are we using when someone comes in and they are pregnant and they are in distress and maybe they have more children that you think you should have or that you feel like she should have? What are the steps that you're going to take to challenge bias? And what does that look like? Maybe her life doesn't look exactly like you think it should as a provider or you think it might look like in a different set of circumstances. That's where our cultural humanity has to come into play as providers. And that's a great example to say, it's not our decision to make how many people celebrate this beautiful baby being born. Our job is to step back and get out of their way and do our medical job and say, wow, that is pretty incredible. This community has had this blessing that they are all celebrating. And there are many cultures that have the same circumstance. And so I think the sort of key messaging is to always be practicing that cultural humility, to always step back and look at, am I reflecting on my own biases here or am I not? Do I have a bias in this circumstance? Does the system have a bias in this them? And how am I going to address that go forward? So would you so eloquently and bravely and kindly and wonderfully? Well, I'm a true believer of learning from those who have gone before and how they've made mistakes so that we don't all repeat the mistakes of the past because we as a a society have made some horrific mistakes. And part of what I would love to have a quick chat about, and and you have mentioned some things, is, is for those of us who are, we were chatting before how nervous I was to talk to you today because I'm on the beginning of my journey of learning around kind of cultural humility and starting to look at my biases and hopefully recognize them. We all have biases. Some of them we don't see, but some of them with time we have pointed out to us, how can we move on that kind of allyship or how, what are the steps that we can start to take 
towards becoming useful allies or helping to improve the system for all members, for everybody in our society, but for specifically these populations who have who have been injured by us and have that memory very close at hand for many of them. How can we make safer spaces? What are some kind of concrete steps that we can do? Absolutely. So when I look at allyship, I look at it as sort of a stepwise piece where the first thing is cultural humility. The first thing is reflecting upon where and how we're working and what we have already experienced and what are those teachings and learnings that we've already come across. So that recognition piece. And within that, not asking people to retell their stories. So what we don't want is further victimization of those that have already been traumatized. So we want to ensure that if you want to learn something about the residential school system, the Indian hospital system, course sterilization, the information's been told. Seek it out, learn it, hear it, and believe it. Because too often are we saying to Indigenous and other people of color to repeat their story particularly Indigenous families and communities, to repeat their story about the atrocities that have occurred is not appropriate. And then it becomes this idea of how do we now challenge what's happening? And I always encourage people to start in their own life, their own circumstance. So if you are working within a hospital system, you're working within a community clinic, you're working within the confines of a space within a larger space, Look at what you can do within that space. Forms are a great one. Translate these forms. Make sure that they're legible. Make sure they're understandable. Translate your room into one that is a culturally safe space. And have these conversations at the beginning of your conversations with the patient that reflect that you are hoping to get to know them and you are hoping to know what their life will be like when they leave your care. So you have an idea and understanding of their life. And share stories. And that's okay. It's okay to put our medical guard down, which we all have in every specialty of medicine and healthcare. It's okay to let that down because we're asking people to do it. And that can be a two-way street to a degree, whatever you're comfortable with and whatever someone else is comfortable with. And then it becomes those larger steps of now how do you challenge the system outright and make those changes? They start with those small steps and they turn into big steps. And there's never a harm in saying, you know what, I am a worker within a larger system. Who do I approach and what does that look like to make those larger changes? So you've changed your office and what it looks like and you've changed your forms. So now you go to your supervisor, you go to your manager, you go to the larger hospital network and you say, we need to make this change. And with enough voices doing that, things will change. So it's starting with yourself and then growing it. And it's, it can be this thought that we have to take it all on right away, start there, and then it'll grow. So it's just this constant reflection. Yeah, a lot of small changes end up making significant impact. So I think that's mm -hmm. great. Awesome. Anything else that you wanted to chat about today, get across to our audience? I know you've been doing a tremendous amount of work in this field. And we will post a bunch of resources, both in the show notes and, and on the website, just to make it easy for people to access, because there are some incredible resources that have already been developed and don't need to be redeveloped and we can all learn from. But are there any kind of final thoughts or words that you wanted to share? I think, Sam, as you've mentioned, there are a lot of resources that are available right now and sort of 
the reading of them earnestly and understanding that most of our work at First Nations Health Authority comes directly from community. So an example would be the consent that's available on the Chief Medical Office website page within the FNHA website. The questions and the form within that we've created, for example, it's by community. And so we're hearing, believing, challenging, and making change. And so our allyship is represented in a lot of that. And I just encourage everyone else that's listening or hearing this to consider just what those small changes could be that could grow into much bigger ones and what that might look like. And really reflect on some of the things that I've mentioned. And you can actually find some summaries of some of the pieces as far as rights and coercion in AIM, my rights blog that comes out frequently out of NHA that you can search the website for. But also the College of Physicians and Surgeons has been a great ally to us. And we were able to collectively put out a joint statement on coercion, and we've been able to contribute tremendously to their work on consent. And so the registrar statement of this month and the joint statement that came out within the last eight weeks, I think are important pieces to understand how coercion occurs and what healthcare providers can really do to change. When you look at, when we consider CMPA's sort of thoughts on this, there is a great manual on consent on the CMPA website, but it states very clearly that a lot of complaints come forward related to consent. And that consent is consent to being treated at all, being treated within our healthcare system. But it stems from how are we talking to our patients? Do we know our patients? Do we know where they're coming in from? And do we know where they're going? And what does that look like? Have they been factored in to our forms, our thoughts, our processes? Has that voice been as important as that within the system in which we have been operating? Yeah. But I'm very grateful to be here. And I thank you very much for hearing me. Thank you. We, we have a patient-focused site, She Found Health, and we, have a, we did a podcast on consent just to talk about all of the, everything that a patient should hear or should understand from any kind of conversation around medical issues. And it's such an important piece. And I think that's one of the biggest takeaway from the birth trauma is that lack of consent or that lack of feeling heard or that lack of knowing, understanding what's going on. And so it's such an important piece in the perinatal world, but in all of our medical world. So thank you very much, Anjali, for coming and talking with me today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pregnancy for Professionals. Make sure to share this podcast with your colleagues and head on over to wherever you listen to podcasts to give us a five-star review if you think we're worth it. And also please make sure to fill out the quick survey below to let us know what topics you want to hear more about. Have a great day.